Attention, please. Places for top of show. Places for top of show. Hello, and welcome to Twins Talk Theater. We are Cindy and Stacy, and we're talking about theater, backstage life, and all the excitement that the audience doesn't get to see. Enjoy the show. Welcome to this week's podcast. Today, we're talking to Cheryl Mintz, who's a stage manager that I met through the Stage Managers Association. She's currently in her 29th season as a resident production stage manager at the McCarter Theater in New Jersey, where she stage managed 90 plus productions and 100 plus workshops. This season marks her 35th production with the artistic director and resident playwright, Emily Mann, which hopefully we'll be able to talk to uh, later in the podcast or not talk to talk about later in the podcast. She also has six Broadway credits to her name, has worked at the Spoleto Festival in the U.S. and Italy, is well-versed in dramas, musicals, operas, and tours, and is a guest lecturer and teaches master classes all across the country. She's been a member of the Stage Managers Association for over 30 years, I believe, and is currently a director at large and the chair of the Del Hue Awards Events Committee, which has this annual awards ceremony coming up September 23rd, which we also hope to talk about uh, soon in the podcast. So welcome, Cheryl. Uh, it was kind of hard to like take your huge experience <laughs> and uh, break it down as small as possible. Stacey's like, that's way too much. And I was like, that's as, that's as good as I can get. There's a lot of stuff that you've done. So it was very exciting to have you on the podcast. Thank you, uh, Stacey and Cindy. It's very nice to be joining you. Thanks. So to start off with, how did you get into theater and did you always want to be a stage manager or did you kind of make your way to stage management? Um, I am definitely 100% a career production stage manager. Um, like many of us, I found my way into theater in junior high and high school through performing. I always seem to get the second or third lead in all the high school productions. I never got the lead. So what does that tell you? If I'm not getting the lead in high school, how well am I going to do in college? <laughs> and then, etc. So in 11th grade, in my junior year, director Barry Kaplan, who ran an extraordinary theater program at Oceanside High School on Long Island in New York, uh, asked me to be the stage manager for The Crucible, which was the fall play. And let me tell you, I was so worried about not getting cast in the show and not being part of the clique with my peers that I took the position. And it was a catch-22. I had to decide prior to auditions. And let me tell you, my, my father was crushed that he would <laughs> see his little girl on stage. But it redirected my whole life at age 16 in terms of my goals in theater. Um, I didn't know what area of management I wanted to be in, whether I wanted to be stage management, general management, company management, managing director. There was no internet back in 1978. So all those answers were not at the touch of a button. Um, right. And I had an extraordinary time doing The Crucible. And after auditions, I did find out from Barry that, yes, I would have been cast, but he really needed a stage manager. <laughs> and I guess he thought I'd be good at it. But, you know, in high school, I was the president of the Thespian Society and secretary of concert choir. And I was elected to direct the senior 
thespian production, which was the Fantastics. So I guess I was gravitating towards the more managerial side of theater. And I just had to find my way into college. And I did audition to get into my university program, um, but I had no interest in becoming an actor. I mean, I absolutely knew that. And my parents couldn't afford a private, like I would have loved to have gone to NYU undergraduate, but we couldn't afford it. So I pursued the State University of New York, the SUNY system, which had some amazing theater programs at Stony Brook, Binghamton, Buffalo, Purchase, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is more of a conservatory. And I did apply to Purchase, but I withdrew because I didn't want to be in a conservatory. I wanted to get a really strong undergraduate education outside of my theater work. And I did get into SUNY Stony Brook, which at that time was the second strongest SUNY school in the system with Binghamton as the strongest in terms of resume cloud. So that led me to Stony Brook. It was an amazing program at the time. And there were quite a few professors on the faculty who were graduates of the Yale School of Drama. So I was certainly influenced by Tom Newmiller and Michael Baumgarten and Robert Heller. Um, In my third year, my junior year, I got a New York State scholarship to study for three semesters in England at the University of Loughborough. And that also was galvanizing for me as a young artist. I was the only stage manager in the program. It was all actors, directors, and playwrights. So I was the production stage manager of everything we did. Uh, Notably, they did a production of Marat Saad. And I came back from my senior year at Stony Brook very revitalized um, and not jaded and not burnt out. (laughs) So... And Did I had a one- the, like the British, they have different, not different ways of stage managing, but they don't necessarily do it the same way as we do in the States, right? Did you I learn how they did it? Or? Not really. I, I think it was a long time ago. <laughs> I, it was like 1982. Uh, I think the year that I was abroad was the one semester I could have taken the stage management class at SUNY Stony Brook, but I was abroad that year. Mm, So I basically learned from Lawrence Stern's stage management book. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, uh, The gray one back in 1982. I literally took that out of the library at the University of Loughborough, which they happen to have over there. Um, And I kind of self-taught. And then Mm -hmm. when I got back in my senior year, Leonard Auerbach uh, was teaching the stage management course again. And I, I just took it to take it. But in a way, I was self-taught. And from what I remember, I was calling the show. I was calling cues. I was Mm -hmm. doing what we do. I have no memory of a British style of stage management. Um, And certainly no one there was going to teach me what to do because it was all directors, playwrights, actors. I just did my thing. I was sort of... You're like, well, this is what I guess has to happen. So this is what I'm going to do. Yeah, yeah. So I think I was a bit self-taught in some ways. Um, there weren't many stage management programs at universities back in the late 1970s, early 80s. Not as not as many as there are today. Um, but I did. I came back in my to my senior year at Stony Brook, 
very revitalized. And that's when I decided to apply to the Yale School of Drama's directing and stage management program. Now, Yale's stage management program has moved. For a while, it was part of the technical design. Then it was part of administration. It was part of directing. It's moved back and forth. Now it's its own thing. But when I was there from 84 through 87, it was part of the directing program. And I applied. Uh, It was really Yale School of Drama or nothing. Um, I really didn't apply anywhere else. I did apply to Columbia University's theater management program as a backup. Uh Um, And it's very interesting. I really learned my first lesson, always go on an interview. I had gotten into Yale, but my interview for Columbia followed getting my acceptance to the drama school. And I was like, well, let me go to the Columbia interview, see what happens. Maybe they'll offer me money. Um, (laughs) Maybe they'll offer me a better deal. Yeah. And I met with Howard Stein for an hour. He was brilliant. I learned so much about what I wanted in terms of my career and my trajectory. And he asked such wonderful questions. And I remember at the very end of the interview, he said, Cheryl, you should go to Yale. And I almost fell out of my chair. And that's when I realized everyone talks to everyone. He already knew before I walked into that interview that I had gotten accepted to the drama school because he used to be the uh, associate dean of the drama school, for one. And for two, you know, people check around and people talk. Yeah. So um, that's that's pretty funny, though. He still had you come in and do the whole interview just to see you. Yeah. And just, yeah. And well, I I guess he didn't know whether or not I accepted Yale yet or not. And probably, I don't know if I had accepted it yet. Maybe it was three days after the letter came or a week. I can't remember. And actually the letter never came. Um, I mean, the letter came, but Bob Heller, he actually called the admissions uh, dean to ask if I had got in. And that's how I found out uh, from my professor who just couldn't wait anymore. He wanted to know if I had gotten in. And my father was like, son of a bitch, that girl gets everything she shoots for. And my parents were really happy. And it was, it was, it was a great trajectory. Um, So um, I don't know if I would have ended up uh, certainly where I am, but in theater, had I not gone to the drama school, because back then networking was totally different. And I just don't, you know, even though I lived on Long Island, I was a New Yorker, which was a, a huge, you know, help in ter- yeah. versus being out in the Midwest and wanting to break into Broadway or off Broadway. I mean, ge- geographically, I was right there. But I just don't know if I would have like made the right connections or made the right connections or, or known how to network in without the drama school. And, but the thing about going to Yale is like when I mentor our apprentices here at McCarter theater or college students that I'm speaking to, I am very pro education. I'm very pro education yet. You do not need an MFA to get from Yale to be a production stage manager But I feel education has become the spine of who I am and fed my soul. I also feel education is something 
no one can ever take away from me. Um, while I was at the Yale School of Drama, I collaborated with five, over my three years, it works out to 500 other theater artists and graduate students who were as passionate and talented as I am. So, you know, everyone jokes about the Yale Mafia, but it is a big network and Mm -hmm. you know what to expect when I know what to expect when a Yale designer walks through the doors at McCarter or a Yale actor or Yale directors, you know, so every season, so many come through, but of course there's so many other great programs you've got, you know, um, and I know all the really strong undergraduate programs for, stage management because those always get a second look when those applications come in applying for the stage management apprenticeship here at McCarter. Um, We generally, I don't think I have ever hired a stage management apprentice who had finished graduate school. I always hire straight out of undergraduate, but I, I I digress. Um, So that's (laughs) sort of my scholastic journey. Um, While I was at the Yale School of Drama, my thesis was pivotal, and I got to choose which production I wanted to do. At the time I was there, it was during Lloyd Richards' um, tenure as dean, and it was August the start of the August Wilson um, cycle, century cycle. We were doing Ma Rainey, Fences, I, I was on the world premiere of Fences. I was on the world premiere of Joe Turner's Come and Gone. Um, but in my third year, Athel Fugard was directing and starring in a new play that he wrote called A Place with the Pigs. And that was my thesis production. And it was certainly pivotal. Um, I'm not super crazed and political, but I was definitely gravitating towards theater with a mission and political theater. My whole world burst open working with Athel. I don't think I was focused on what was happening in South Africa back in the 1980s and my world burst open. I learned so much through doing theater and I learned Mm -hmm. so much about what was happening in South Africa. And Athel really set a very high artistic bar for me as a theater maker and a young theater artist. Um, By challenging you or like challenging the way you think? By just being, he didn't, it wasn't about challenging me. It was just being part of that collaboration. Hmm. Um, And we hit it off really well. And he asked me to leave Yale a month early to go to the Spoleto Festival USA and do the National Theater production of The Road to Mecca. So uh, I had to get released from Yale a month early. Um, They would only let me go if I promised to fly back for graduation, (laughs) which was crazy because, of course, there was a performance. So I took took a first-year stage management student, uh, Sandra Williams, uh, Sandra Carlson, I think was her maiden name, and... um, So that gave her an amazing opportunity. So the two of us went went to Spoleto. She called the show that I missed so I could fly back for graduation. And the reason I had to fly back is because um, I was awarded the John Badham scholarship and 
um, what was the other? And I had a special graduation honor. So I didn't know that at the time. I was just going to ask that. They were just like, no, you have to be here. And they yeah, wouldn't tell you why. Yeah, they didn't <laughs> tell me why. So um, I, I had to like, I don't know, either carry the flag or I had to carry the key for the drama school or I had to accept. I think at the main graduation, I had to go up and accept the award or accept the whatever, the blessing or the certificate for the whole <laughs> drama school. And then we go off and do our own ceremony at the theater uh, at the university theater, but it was a crazy day. And of course I parked my car at the Charleston airport. I guess I left the lights on cause I was just so nervous. So I get back at seven o'clock, I land at seven and I go to my car and the battery's dead and I had an eight <laughs> o'clock show that night, but I seem to remember I got back and I got there for the show. Oh my God. But Talk about a stressful flight. That was a very, it was very stressful. Um, but it all happened and my parents were at graduation and I guess I didn't sleep. I don't, I, I don't remember. <laughs> You're but, like, I don't remember very much of it, but it happened. Yeah. But uh, Athel really, it was a real blessing to have the bar set so high artistically for me right at the beginning of my professional career. Um, another fabulous thing that happened uh, in our production management class, at Yale, Rick Hay was the head lecturer, and he brought in this incredible woman. Her name was Ellen Soren, and she had just done the bicentennial happening in the East River in New York. I mean, a big event. Um, and she and I really hit it off. She was lecturing in she was a guest lecturer in our production management class. And I like raised my hand saying, oh, one day I want to stage manage the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. And like everyone in my class laughed, not at me, but laughed, oh, Cheryl's going to do that, which I in fact did like six months later. I was one of the stage <laughs> managers, <laughs> one of the Broadway excerpts. But um exchange business cards and she immediately invited me to New York to quote unquote observe her doing a special event at the Jewish Theological Seminary. Uh, Dionne Warwick was performing and Brooke Baccarat was there and I thought I was just going to observe. Well, let me tell you, she put me to work for 16 hours I was working and she gave me car fare and sent me back to New Haven and that sort of sealed the deal. She was my mentor um, so then when I got back from Spoleto, I guess she offered me this position to be the production associate for Dancing for Life, which was the first AIDS education, research and care major benefit in New York. Now, just put this in context. This was in 1987, the summer of 1987. And that is when that was the start of mm -hmm. everything that was happening uh, in New York, the scare, the everything with AIDS. Um, so this was the first benefit of its kind. So it was going to be me as a production associate. Ellen was the executive producer and Jerome Robbins mm. was the artistic director. Mm -hmm. So this is what I was going to be working on. And, it was going to start in about two weeks. And then 
I get a phone call to be the production stage manager of a Broadway musical that was coming in from South Africa. So, and I always use this example uh, with my classes at a theater that was like my goal, my dream to work at. So here I was faced with a choice. I was starting in two weeks on this job with Ellen Soren and Jerome Robbins, making a fifth of what I would have made had I taken the Broadway musical. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was 25. So I was always, always asked my students, what would you do? Would you withdraw from the job that you already accepted, make that you're going to make a fifth and take your Broadway show, or what would you do? And it's always interesting to see what the students choose. What would you choose? Um, I feel like if I was younger, I would have chosen the Broadway musical because that's what I really wanted to do when I first moved to New York. But now being older, I would stay with the other one because I think it would have had more of an impact with me. Like kind of what you mentioned, how uh, doing theater with a purpose, doing something that, you know, is beneficial for more people. Um, I would have probably stuck with that one. Mm. But 15 years ago, 10 years ago, I probably would have gone with the musical, I think. Even now, if I could make five times more money, I'd probably leave my current job because I need money. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, but also, you know, theater pieces, it's not like a full-time job that you're going to do for the next five or ten years. Yeah. Some of them are only four months or six months, or if it's a hit, it might be a few years. Um, but that that's not something that crossed my mind. I did stick with Dancing for Life. Um, it was extraordinary getting to work. I mean, I was a I was a, a drop in Jerome Robbins' life, but getting to work on this project was incredible. And I walked out of that. There were 13 major dance companies. I mean, ABT, New York City Ballet, Joffrey, mm-hmm. Dance mm-hmm. Theater of Harlem, Alvin Alley. Merce Cunningham, Lar like Leibovitz, all, all of them, <laughs> all of them. And actually, I could have walked out of that project and probably gotten a company management job at any one of those uh, dance companies. But dance was not what I wanted to pursue. But it was an amazing happening. Um, at the time, what did you want to pursue? Oh, I was trained to be. I wanted to be Annie Keefe at Long Wharf. I was, um, I was trained to be a Lort. I was trained to be a Lort stage manager at, you know, one of the best theaters in the country, you know, whatever mm-hmm. they were. Mm-hmm. Um, that was my track. Now I was just saying how it's, how different schools train you for different things. Oh, ba- back in the eighties, like what I'm doing now at McCarter theater is exactly what I was what? What you were trained to do. Exactly what I was trained to do. So since you chose to stay with the the one that you said you worked with, like multiple, multiple dance companies, did that increase your networking opportunity as well? Because now you have connections to Alvin Ailey and to the golf, to, you know, the ballet and New York City Ballet and all that stuff. Was that kind of where you wanted to go with your life at the time? It, it was not where I wa- I did not want to go into the dance world, but what it did was solidify my collaboration with Ellen Soren, who was turned into a great mentor 
for mm-hmm. me um, when I was 25, 26. And she ultimately was the connection for me to my first Broadway contract. Um, she told me that Tracy Crum was leaving me and my girl and going out on the national tour and there was a job open. So I sent Steve Zweigbaum a perfect letter, a perfect resume. Um, he, 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 he let me know that, of course, as soon as Tracy went out on the national tour, they immediately hired someone. So the mm-hmm. job was no lo- was gone before it was available. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did hold on to my letter and resume. So in the fall after Dancing for Life, he did end up calling me in for an interview. And on the spot, he offered me the replacement ASM on the Broadway company of Me and My Girl. And it was like my Marlo Thomas moment. I walked out of the Marquee Theater. I was in the middle of Broadway. It was like tossing my hat in the air. It was extraordinary. <laughs> um, but so even though you'd already turned down one Broadway contract, within a few months you got, you right, still got right. it. Yeah. So every, there you go. Everything comes around. Yeah. And um, that's true. Yeah. Uh, some other cool things in terms of networking. Over the summer, prior to... Uh, doing the Dancing for Life event, I went on an interview for a dinner theater. And I really, you know, I, I don't think I would have ever worked at a dinner theater. It's just not what I was groomed to do in a way. <laughs> um, but I went on the interview and I learned so much from that interview. And the PSM who was leaving that dinner theater was actually hiring a replacement because he was going in to ASM on a Broadway show called Teddy and Alice. And fast forward two months, I got a phone call from him when Teddy and Alice were looking for a production assistant. So actually, Teddy and Alice was my first Broadway show. Um, I was a non I was a non equity production assistant. And after that, I worked at New York Theater Workshop with my peer, many of my peers from Yale. We're doing a production at New York Theater Workshop. So that that came exactly at the same time. I kind of got three jobs at once. New York Theater Workshop as a production stage manager. At the same time, The Road to Mecca was happening in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, a new version of the one that was done at the Spoleto Festival with Athel Fugard playing Marius, Yvonne Bryslin playing Helen, and Amy Irving uh, playing Charlotte. Uh, John Lee Beatty did the uh, sets. Uh, Susan Hilferty was the costume designer. Athel Fugard was directing. I, but it had to be on a Broadway production contract because we were using international artists, even though we were not using a Broadway theater. Um, so I got Yeah. So I got, it was that and me and my girl hip. So these three jobs all came, I think, within three weeks. Uh, so I went, I did the New York Theater Workshop production, and then I did um, Me and My Girl. And that was, you know, going in for a short amount of time in the New York production. And then in February, I was doing Road to Mecca again for the second time, a new version in New York with Ethel Fugard. And that went for about nine months. Um, 
that's a wonderful contract. Yeah. So, so it was a wonderful contract. Basically my first two years out of Yale, I was pretty much always on some sort of Broadway contract over those two years. Once the road to Mecca closed, uh, Steve's Wybound reached out to me to go on the national tour of me and my girl. So I did that for a year and that was a great year for me because I was young. Uh, I didn't, have to pay rent. I didn't have an apartment. (laughs) All I had to do was pay back my student loans. My parents forwarded me my mail and I got to see the country. We played 35 cities and that's 35 union houses and IATSE crews. And I learned so much. Um, George Martin was the production stage manager. He was like my road dad. Uh, And it was an extraordinary year for me. And I really took advantage of touring the country and uh, seeing the country. I was a very good tourist uh, during that year. Every city we were in, I made the most of it. But then I got back to New York. And again, this was before the internet. So all the jobs that I was getting calls for were other tours. And I got a call from... Uh, you know, a a big international tour producer to do the national, the international European tour of a chorus line. And this is another question I ask my students. This is another question I ask my students. Um, I was, what, I was 27. I had never worked internationally. I only spoke English. I had never ASM'd a chorus line. And I had never... PSM'd a national tour. Should you take that contract? PSMing an international tour, mostly in Germany. And I just felt I was maybe setting myself up for failure. And I also didn't want to tour anymore. So I had a sort of break off. I had a say no to that opportunity. And I had a start from not from scratch, but I had a sort of start over with my New York networking because I was out right, of the city. You, once you leave for a year, you kind of fall off everybody's radar. But not anymore, not with social media. I feel it's totally different now with social media. I feel so connected to stage managers across the country, stage managers out on national tours, out on yeah. world tours. I do. I mean, as a, a Northeast person, I feel whether John Atherley is... 3,000 miles across the country or in New York doing some, he's always doing a Broadway show or a Broadway national tour. I feel as connected to him as I do to James Latis or Matt DiCarlo who are doing shows in New York because of mm-hmm. social media. Um, and I, I did kind of have to dig in and rebuild some connections um, and tap into others. But uh, Terrence Witter, Terry Witter, who was actually one of the Chicago stage managers for over 18 years, he was on Chicago, and he was the Fences production stage manager when Fences transferred to Broadway, uh, the world premiere transferred to Broadway. He was doing a play called Change in the Air, a musical, and he hired me to be his assistant stage manager, and that was a Broadway contract. So actually, Teddy and Alice was my first flop, 
And <laughs> Change in the Air was my second Broadway flop. And I'm very proud because you learn and you grow from those. And you also have to remember that was at a time that there were very few women production stage managers. I was actually just going to say Broadway. that. Yeah. That's... It, was, it was like um, Mary Porter Hall or um, Sally Jacobs, um, Susie Corden. I mean, there were very few Broadway PSMs. Mm-hmm. So Susie getting, Corden, who, who I worked with when I was there. Oh, excellent. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, so, so, you know, did you feel like that was like, how do I want to word this? Did you feel like you had to try harder as a female or did they just come to you or did you even notice that it was a, a thing that you were one of a very few female stage managers? Uh, It just like happened and it wasn't even anything that was really discussed at the time. Yeah. It just happened. I wasn't like, I think I reflect back on it, but, you know, I came out of a cohort at the L School of Drama. It was two men, two women. There was never a lid put on me because I was a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's only one time in my career that I was working for an extraordinarily high-level company for quite a few years, and I felt I hit the glass ceiling. But mm. other than that, I never... I don't feel like I've, I bore those struggles of being a female stage manager in my career trajectory. Um, And perhaps I have Susie Corden and Mary Porter Hall and Sally Jacobs to thank for that. Um, The the Broadway production stage managers of the 1980s, um, I have to thank for that. Annie Keefe, I've always looked up to Annie Keefe, never worked for her, but she's always been this, and we know each other now, uh, but I've always looked to her or what she was 25 years ago as where I wanted to go. Mm -hmm. I looked up to Ellen Soren, um, but it was was a great two years, my first two years out of the Yale School of Drama, but ultimately... I didn't, I, th- I don't think I felt artistically fulfilled hmm. um, in the end. And I really wanted to commit to a company. And while I was doing a change in the air, there was, there was a, um, an ad in Art Search that New York City Opera was looking for stage management staff. And I was one of three stage managers that were hired at New York City Opera because they wanted a more Broadway style of stage management. So they hired myself. I think it was Steve Zorthian. It might have been Michael Manfredi. Maybe it was all three of us. Maybe it was the three of us and Peggy Embry. Who was oh, I an know Peggy stage. Embry too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, she was an opera stage manager. Yep. But when yep. I was hired for New York City Opera, I had never done an opera in my life. <laughs> I was just going to ask you that. I was like, opera hasn't come up yet in this conversation. I yeah. only saw two and a half operas. And when I was at Spoleto and I saw Salome, I was like, mm-hmm. they spent a quarter of a million dollars on this and they're only doing two performances. And yeah. I'm over at the Dock Street Theater with my little Ethel Fugard play doing 18 performances over a two week period. I just like, I, I didn't get it, but I, I appreciated it and I love the music, but I, again, I was in the right place at the right time and who hired me at New York city opera, but Rick Kay, 
my production management professor at the Yale School of Drama. So <laughs> that's definitely how I got my foot in the door. And I showed up my first day of work. They flew me out to Wolf Trap. And immediately I was put on Madam Butterfly and um, <sighs> Gilbert and Sullivan, the Mikado. And I had never done an opera in my life. I didn't know the operas. And here I was thrown right into the stage rehearsal. And I was ASMing two days later, the opening night performances that weekend of both operas. And that's Why did how they got... bring you down to Wolf Trap so that you can learn the shows? Well, they were starting their season. They were, that was the start of their season. They would go to SPAC, which was up in Saratoga. They'd either go to SPAC or they'd go to Wolf Trap. So hmm. my contract started... I was ASMing. I ASM 15 productions my first season with New York City Opera. Oh, my God. So it was <laughs> just, you know, and some of them were rep shows. Mikado mm-hmm. and Butterfly were rep shows. So you just pull the binder off the shelf, follow the run sheets, and you just do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so of those 15 productions, probably half of them were in the rep, uh, and the other half were new productions. And then my second year... I ASM 13 productions, I believe. And then my third year, I started calling follow spots for the musicals. And I believe I PSM'd two productions that year. So, and then my fourth year, I was PSMing a few more, but still ASMing in the fifth year the same. So it was an amazing experience because Friday night, I might be the ASM on Boheme. Saturday afternoon, I might be running stage right for a little night music. Mm-hmm. Um, Saturday night, I might be calling Flatermouse. And Sunday matinee, I might be up in the booth calling follow spots for Desert Song. So <laughs> it was incredible because I was moving from assisting to calling spots. And I did have a few... Um, PSM shows, but I really learned everything about opera stage management from Peggy Embry because she came in as a total opera stage manager. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that year, Susan Stroman was choreographing and Scott Ellis was directing a phenomenal production of A Little Night Music. Uh, Stephen Sondheim, it, it, it was just very, very special. And I remember... Stephen invited just the people that made the show happen after the PBS telecast. So there were no donors, there were no muckamucks to his brownstone in New York for a very special dinner. And I will always remember that evening. Yeah. Uh, And his brownstone was magical with all his awards and his, he's very into puzzles and games. And there were all these historic puzzles and games. Uh, He was so generous. And I was lucky to have another crossroads with Stephen Sondheim later in my career. But that was a magical time. But at the same time as at New York City Opera, City Opera was about seven months, the contract was about seven months out of the year. So I kept returning to the Spoleto Festival in Charleston because once I worked one season at New York City Opera, Spoleto could hire me 
because they didn't produce theater. Theater was brought in. And they couldn't rehire me after I did Athol's Road to Mecca because I wasn't an opera stage manager. But as mm-hmm. soon as I got one season of New York City, City Opera under my skin, in my bones, I was immediately hired back. Thank you very much, John Paul and Reese Williams. And uh, that was the start of my collaboration with maestro John Carlo Minotti. And I returned to the Spoleto Festivals 13 times, both in the U.S. Wow. and Italy, and I, I, I basically became Maestro Minotti's American production stage manager for many, many, many years. Um, and I would say Fugard and Minotti, those were the cornerstones of my career um, <laughs> at that time. But while I was working for New York City Opera, um, I got a call from the Carter Theater because Susie Corden was the production state resident production stage manager. And in 1991, they were doing a new production of Christmas Carol and they needed a, re- a rehearsal stage manager to handle Emily Mann's production of the three sisters while Susie was upstairs dealing with Christmas Carol. Now, how did I get my foot in the door in, in terms of McCarter theater? This reverts back to my time at SUNY Stony Brook. My second year, my sophomore year at SUNY Stony Brook, we had an ERTA, a guest artist contract, where we did a production of South Pacific. The two leads were equity actors, and they brought in a professional production coordinator from New York to run the stage management team, and that was Laura Dubuis Hastings. And trust me, I was the fourth ASM to the right. I was at the bottom (laughs) of that table, but... Laura remembered me, and when I was at Yale, um, I reached out to her, and she invited me to come into New York and observe her and Susie Corden running Noises Off. So I went, and uh, Susie was just amazing with her. I always remember her fur coat and her red hat and her red pocketbook, her and she was very classy and she very wore dresses. Classy, yeah. yep. she, she always wore dresses. And I'm like, oh, my God, look at this Broadway stage manager calling a show in a dress. I just loved it. Cindy <laughs> um, still does were, that sometimes, just, just <laughs> to wear a dress on calling a show. <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> so, so Susie really impressed me. And Laurel had always impressed me. And they sent me back on my way back up to New Haven. You know, I observed whatever when I was 21, probably my first year at Yale is when I went in to observe that. And I did all the correct things in terms of following up and keeping in touch. Uh, I probably didn't send my resume because I was a student at school and I still had two and a half years to go. Mm-hmm. But fast forward eight years and that good networking when I was 21 paid off when I was like 28, 29, mm-hmm. because Susie asked Laura, I need to find someone. And Laura's like, remember Cheryl? She graduated from Yale. Why don't we reach out to her? So it's amazing that that networking paid off so many many years later. later. Yeah. And Susie called me to do Emily's man's production of the three sisters. And that was 35 productions ago with Emily. So I've, I'm very proud that I'm going into rehearsal on Monday for Gloria, a life. Uh, this is Emily Mann's 30th season at McCarter. It's the 35th production that Emily and I are collaborating on. Um, 
this is a very special year for me. Emily is stepping down as artistic director in June. And um, I'm just so happy we can sort of tie a bow on it. Her 30th season, our 35th production. Um, but here, loop back to Ellen Soren and loop back to that decision I had to make, whether mm-hmm. to stay with the dance Dancing or- for Life or do the... Broadway musical at that fabulous theater that I wanted to work at. Had I burnt that bridge, who knows where my career would be this to this day because Ellen Soren's husband is David York and he has been the director of production at McCarter Theater for over 33 years. Everybody's um, related. <laughs> everybody's related. He stepped down last year, and we have a, a new director of production for this past year. But I don't know. Had I burnt that bridge with Ellen Soren, would have that affected my relationship or my continuing on at McCarter Theater once David put two and two together? Mm-hmm. But David has been, he was my supervisor, my peer, my mentor my collaborator, my friend, my professional everything for 27 years at McCarter. So there's so many people we talk to where they, where they say, you know, it was just like one fateful moment or like one meeting or one run into, you know, and that's kind of like what you're talking about. You know, there was just this like one decision and who knows what, where your life would have gone if you had made another decision or not, you know, not been there at the right time. It's so amazing. Yeah. So I, I sort of, from 1990 to 1995, I basically had three artistic islands. New York City Opera, I would do two or three productions or odd projects at McCarter and Spoleto. Um, and then just rotated throughout the year. And rotated throughout the year. And then David... Uh, I guess he had, Susie was departing to do a Broadway show and he asked me to be the resident stage manager back in 1994. And I felt I still had where to go at New York City Opera. Well, in 1995, he didn't hire a resident stage manager. He just brought in New York stage managers freelancing on each production. But what happens is McCarter pays well and we're so close to New York, you can commute. But Mm -hmm. we were losing, what happens is he would lose his stage managers a few weeks before first rehearsal started because Mm -hmm. they would get a Broadway show. Mm -hmm. So he he really wanted a resident person. And that means you have to commit. Um, But a year later, I was ready to commit. And boy, was I lucky that the job was still available um, <laughs> and he didn't hire anyone and that's when I went on full-time so I had been doing two or three productions or assignments a year and then in 1995 I went on full-time as the resident production stage manager but it works both ways you know you have to commit so yeah. so you couldn't do anything else yeah. so when when was it that you joined SMA was it a, it was before that Oh, totally. I joined the Stage Managers Association, I believe, in 1986 when I was in my third year at Yale, though I might have joined in 85. Uh, I might have joined in 85 or 84, My one of my first two years. Uh, 
I can't remember and I probably would have to dig to figure it out. I'm not a founding member of the SMA, um, but I joined quite soon after it was founded at a very young age. So you've seen a lot of changes. Yeah. Because now everybody knows things through the internet. How did you learn about it? I I, I think I just found out about it because I was a student at the Yale School of Drama and maybe... Like a professor told you, or maybe maybe Frank Torok, who was the professor, told me, or Neil Ann Stevens, um, Maggie Quinn was up there, so somebody must have known about the association and told us about it. But I joined rather young in my career, and immediately coming to New York, I went to meetings, I was involved, I was engaged. It wasn't online. So if you wanted Mm -hmm. to meet stage managers, you had to show up at drink nights or events or the Christmas party or the meetings. Like every meeting we would have a topic of discussion and a round table. There was meetings every month and people showed up. So um, we used to put out, I'm looking at them right now above my desk, there were stage management directories that were put out biannually. And I, let me tell you, I would study those directories. So if I ran into um, Arturo Parazzi or um, Peter Lawrence or any mm-hmm. great stage manager in the early, late, late 80s, early 90s, if I ran into them at a party, I would know about them and I would be able to have a smart conversation with them mm-hmm. without being too networky or too annoying or too overbearing. Um, but I, I loved my time and I don't, when I look back at my career, I don't think there's a single job that I actually got because I was a member of the stage management association. Well, maybe one Andy Fagan brought me out to work on national dance Institute at BAM. So I think that might be the only (laughs) production on my resume that I got because I was a member But what I have found as I settled into my position at McCarter is my involvement is mainly about helping my network of McCarter stage managers, the young emerging stage managers, the established stage managers that have come out of the McCarter apprenticeship or been my assistant here. So I feel my place in the SMA is more, it's about benefiting the network of stage managers that have grown out of McCarter. Um, so that's, it's lovely to have that be part of that gift. Um, and now that I'm in the sort of the third, cha- I don't know what chapter it is of my career. <laughs> uh, a lot of, I've reignited my involvement in the SMA. Um, I became a board member of probably around 1990 through, I think from 1990 to 2000. Oh no, 1995 to 2010. I'm pretty sure those were the years I was on the executive board. I also became the New York city party girl. I was, (laughs) I was the organizer of all the parties kind of pre-internet in New York. I was doing the Christmas parties and the, any party or any gathering that needed coordinating, that was 
sort of my department. I handled the 25th anniversary event, which was a very big deal. Um, but then once I moved to Princeton, I, I had my son, Jake, in 2005. So I felt I had to put my time and volunteer efforts into my hometown and into my mm-hmm. son's world. Mm-hmm. So I, I pulled back from the SMA. I left the board and I pulled back from the SMA for about 10 years. But last summer, wouldn't you know it, Janet Friedman and Rich Constable called me up and just dragged me back in. They probably, <laughs> They're like, you've they been probably, gone long enough. <laughs> yeah, they probably saw on Facebook, oh, look at, you know, Jake's 14 now. He's grown up. Time for Cheryl to, to start doing stuff for the SMA again. <laughs> I, I was dragged back in. Um because Janet wanted to step down as the chair of the awards and recognition committee. And she didn't want to, she had done, I don't know, maybe for 10 years, she had handled the event in New York and she just, it was time to step down. She hasn't stayed managed in many years and she wanted to step down. And I think, you know, I found once I hit 50 years old, all these kind of things where they ask you to be on boards and stuff, that they asked sort of the older people to do that just kept that just kept happening i'm like okay yet another like, so this is where i am in my career now <laughs> yeah so anyway they and what it was is they i think they wanted someone with a bit of gravitas because you are dealing with the older uh retired stage managers and and various high profile people who might introduce them um, and I think they just want somebody, they just wanted somebody with some gravitas versus mm-hmm. somebody starting their career to um, handle the event. And I cannot believe how many hours I've been working on this. I've been, it, this has taken so much time because I also had the nominating committee and our process was really a wonderful process. Um, and I worked with a great group of people Joe Drummond, Robin Rumpf, uh, Martha Knight, Jimmy McDermott, Melissa Nathan. Uh, I'm forgetting someone. I'd have to look at my list. It was the, the committee was a dream and we had a great time calling through the nominations, uh, some of which we nominate, but anyone in the stage management community can nominate someone for the Del Hughes Award and then working on the event. So it, it's taken a lot of time. Next year it will be a breeze because I have all my systems down. But right now it's been it's been busy, but I'm so excited and I am so enjoying this project. Uh, and it's wonderful to give back. And I really want to make sure that we honor the artistry and we honor these great stage managers uh, who've deserved this lifetime achievement, but mainly the artistry and and the recognition for the stage management community as a whole. The, the Del Hughes Awards, is, is it the only award for stage managers? Because, like, well, you know, the Tonys don't have anything. All, the, all these other award ceremonies don't really recognize stage managers. Is this, like, the only one? This is the only one that happens annually. Uh, for example, Peter Lawrence got a special recognition Tony Tony Award a few years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. Buzz Cohen, I believe, mm-hmm. got an Obie 
many years ago for stage management. And there might be recognitions in some of the smaller cities right. across the country. I, I'm not necessarily aware of every award that might be given to a stage manager across the country. Um, but as far as like huge ones go, there isn't an annual one. Like No, there, there isn't an, no, there isn't. So amazing. Um, and we're working on two others. I can't really discuss it on this podcast. But it's <laughs> but this uh, coming soon. Yeah. So- and so in addition to the three lifetime achievement awards, uh, our Del Hughes award, honorees this year are Rich Constable, Barbara Donner, and Mary Kay Klinger. We are also recognizing Janet Friedman with a special recognition award for her many years of service to the SMA, and it's called the Founders Award. And this is the first year that we are honoring someone with the Founders Award, and it's Name the Founders Award to honor the founders of the Stage Managers Association. It's not necessarily for someone who was a founder, but for someone who um, embodies uh, the goals of the original founders of the SMA. I could have said that more eloquently. Do we do it? <laughs> I like it. Okay. Is, so is the goal to do a Founders Award every year or just whenever somebody presents themselves that deserves it? I think whenever somebody presents themselves who mm-hmm. deserves it, because we have honored, we have honored an educator with an education special recognition, and we have honored Jay Newfeld with a special recognition. We have also honored Peter Wolf for his work with the Actors Fund uh, with a special recognition. So these special recognitions, it depends on who's out there and mm-hmm. who and what we want to celebrate that year. But I think calling it the Founders Award is also um, opens up to possibly something more annually because there are many great, great, great stage managers who have left the field Mm -hmm. either to teach, uh, gone into academia, um, or have pursued other areas, they might have become a general manager or mm-hmm. a producer or a director. It, I think it's a way to honor people who wouldn't necessarily fall under the criteria of the Del Hughes Award. Along those lines, can you describe more? I mean, I know what it is because I'm part of SMA and I've looked it up, but to everyone who's listening, what? How was the Del Hughes Award started, and then what does it? What are the criteria, kind of, to be nominated for it? Well, the Del Hughes Award is for lifetime achievement in the art of stage management, um, and it's presented by the Stage Managers Association to acknowledge a professional who exhibits the finest qualities of stage management: patience, diplomacy, organization, and a sense of humor. And, <laughs> I love that a sense of humor is there. And Del Hughes who died in 1985, he was an American theater performer, stage manager, and television director. And when he passed away in 1985, his daughter, Julie Hughes, created a legacy for her fathers with the Stage Managers Association. So that's where the name Del Hughes Lifetime Achievement Award 
in the art of stage management comes from. And in 1986, the first award was presented to Phil Friedman. And since then, do you want me to tell you who got it? <laughs> we can, we'll, we'll put the link up, but I did notice there's, for the first number of years, there's only one stage manager awarded. And then at some point it jumped to three stage managers. Do you know why? Just because there well, was that many more stage managers? Well, we missed 10 years. For oh. some reason, between 1999 and 2010, there were no Del Hughes award ceremonies. And I was on the board at that time, but I have no memory of why that happened. Of why that happened. We maybe we didn't have the bandwidth or the manpower or the money. Um, it was a big time of change in the organization as the internet came forth. Huh. We transitioned from being a networking organization where you had to show up in person to, I, I mean, the SMA went through big changes between 2000 and 2010. Um, why it's jumped up to three people, my guess is we had catching up to do in <laughs> yeah. 10 years. <laughs> but I also think it's great that we can honor three people. Like, I feel we should honor, th it's a perfect amount, honor three people a year. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the honorees between 1986 and they skipped some years. There was nothing in 1994, and there was nothing in 96 and 97 and 98. Annie Keefe was in 99. So it wasn't every year. But of those first 10 years, I just want to mention, at first 10 years, only three women got honored. But in that first 10 years, the honorees were very New York or Northeast-centric. And I feel starting in 2011, we broke out more across the nation. Because With, now all of a sudden you have the internet and you have a wider spread and a wider reach and a wider pool. Awareness, yeah. yeah. And a wider, I mean, the there were great people out there. It's just See, SMA didn't know about wasn't part of it. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think it's great. And I feel not only... Should we do diversity in stage managers, male, female? Um, we can now do diversity geographically. Mm -hmm. um, diversity, it's not all about Broadway. It could be off-Broadway, Lort, industrials, television, West okay. Coast, Midwest, Chicago Loop, symphonic, opera, so we really try to make sure we're very diverse. And this year we ha are honoring a man and two women. Um, Barbara hails from the West Coast. Her work as a stage manager for LA Opera and LA Symphony and the Hollywood Bowl. So you get some opera symphony and, you know, big time stuff on the West Coast. Mary mm -hmm. Klinger has done impeccable work at the regional theaters is west coast based and an educator at one of the best universities in california for over 20 years and then rich constable east coast uh male he has done amazing work in lord theaters he's done broadway shows but notably he handled the hal holbrook mark wayne 
Mark Twain Tonight tour for over 17 years. So we have someone who's done an incredible amount of touring and Rich has done unparalleled service for the Stage Managers Association. He was the chairman for re-elected for six terms, which wow. is incredible. That's amazing. So wow, I feel there's a lot of work. Yeah. So so we're able to um, with three people. I feel we can diversify more. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's very it's very really exciting. And so this year the. There's a big ceremony, and this year it's September. Oh, I had it written down. September twenty third, twenty third, from five to eight p.m. at Connolly's in New York City. Um, very shortly, reservations will go live uh, through Eventbrite, and you can go to the Stage Managers Association website um, to. If you're a member, you will get a code, so you get free admission. If you're a non-member, it's $20 to attend the event. Um, from you five don't have to be a stage manager. You don't have to be a stage manager from 5 to 6 p.m. It is food and schmooze, and there'll be a cash bar. And the awards event is from 6 to 7.15. And then from 7.15 to 8 p.m., uh, the bar will remain open for schmooze time post event. So um, that's what's coming up. And we have some really amazing guest speakers, uh, which will be announced in a press release in early September. That's really exciting. I'm literally in tech for a show in Philadelphia at that time. So I'm so bummed that I can't be here, oh. for it. but I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to like put in my calendar earlier for next year and try to work it out in my contract to get out for that. Uh-huh. It's just <laughs> oh, well, sounds so it, wonderful. Uh, the SMA might be live streaming it. I believe there's going to oh. be an SMA go event out in California uh, that people LA based can attend because we are honoring two California stage managers. Right. So, um, so I think there's going to be some out. sort of, yeah, I'll there might be LA. some sort of link up, but I'm sorry. I don't have details on that. Oh, well, well, well once we, I'll get all the emails about it. So yeah. And she forwards them to me. So we should be good. Mm-hmm. That's so, it's so wonderful. I just, I mean, I'd like, I love the SMA and I love stage management. And so I just love that this exists. Because I honestly didn't know about it until recently, for whatever reason. So, mm-hmm. and I know you joined the board because you felt there was no opera stage managers or representation. But hey, I'm an I was an, I'm an opera stage manager. So surprise! I, I, the people who <laughs> the people who mix back and forth, I feel know about it. It's the stage managers who I know that like only do opera that don't know about it. Ah. Uh. So the ones that mix back and forth, yeah, for whatever reason, because we're not solely in the opera world, I guess it's more aware. But there's a number of people I know that have only ever done opera. And every time I mention it to them, I just get blank stares. So that's what's interesting to me is, ah. is those people. Those are the people that I want to tap into. Um, and another sort of networking thing is, and I didn't know this back in the early 90s, but I never got sucked into the opera world to opera people i was known as an opera stage manager and to theater people i was known as a theater stage manager so for five solid years i moved equally 
amongst it's them. Amongst yeah. <laughs> the, the theater world and the opera world. Um, because I do know some theater stage managers who start working in opera and they, they get sucked in and they can't get theater interviews. That's pretty They're much not, yeah, what happened to me. Yeah. So um, I, nobody told me what to do. But I think artistically, I liked moving between the theater and opera world. I would work in theater for a while. And then I get very refreshed working on an opera, listening to that amazing music. And it's a, mm-hmm. it just uses a different side of your stage management. And mm-hmm. then when I was done with my opera at Spoleto, I'd go back to McCarter and I'd be very reinvigorated for the next season. Um, once I went full time at McCarter, I did continue with Spoleto. Up until hmm. 2000 and I think 2002 was my last time working for the Spoleto Festival. Uh, and Maestro Minotti died a few years later. But um, it was great because Spoleto fell after McCarter's season ended. Mm-hmm. So it was sort of like my summer gig. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Spoleto Italy was even later. Was later in the summer so that sort of refreshed me for my theater season <laughs> that's a really great way of looking at it that's what i'd love to do more musicals but now i'm just i mean i've been in opera for 10 years now almost solely so now it is difficult to like not do that mm-hmm. just because of the contracts that i get at this point i don't even have time to look for anything else outside of opera but and back in the day uh in the early 90s at new york city opera we were doing you were doing musicals. Season. We were doing musicals. I yeah. did Post Happy Fella, Little Night Music, Desert Song, um, Cinderella. So they you were still were, able to do. Yeah, I was. I was still stretching my musical muscles. Yeah. Uh, but actually, I I started calling the follow spots. I learned so much from calling follow spots. And it was mostly Mark Stanley was the lighting designer on the musicals. He was the resident lighting designer for New York City Ballet. So um, I really learned about a lot about lighting design through being the follow spot caller at City Opera. And like on Broadway, you're not going to have someone calling follow spots. The spots learn their show. They do it eight times a week. But at New York City Opera, you might only be doing the musical once a week for Mm -hmm. six performances over the course of two months. So mm-hmm. that's why they had a separate stage manager calling foul spots. That's so interesting to me, just because I've always called them myself. So to have somebody else call it would be interesting. But but I haven't run for that long. Most of my operas are shorter. Mm-hmm. Um, one last question before we finish the podcast. And you said you had time to think about this. So do you have any twin stories? Okay, I have two twin stories. Oh, perfect. Yes, because um, it's twins. <laughs> you have to have two. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's twins, right? Um, I was a production stage manager for the world premiere of Edward Albee's Me, Myself, and I. Emily Mann directed. And the play tells a complex story of a mother who has an intimate relationship with a doctor and she has problems telling her 28-year-old sons apart. (laughs) And part of the problem is she named her two sons Otto and Otto. So one, of the, one of the sons is named Otto in cap, capital letters, and the other one is named Otto in lowercase letters. So, But it's Edward Albee. So 
So yeah. that makes sense. That, <laughs> so that's pretty cool to have worked with um, Edward. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, and my second twin story was we were in rehearsal for A Christmas Carol probably 10 years ago. And actually, Anthony Bullock was my ASM. And he is one of, he's the Eastern Regional Rep of the Stage Managers Association. Mm. Um, but we were in rehearsal for Christmas Carol. And someone slips in, Matt Pilsner slips in from Princeton University. They were upstairs uh, getting ready to do their evening performance of this French collaboration between the f language department, the music department, the theater department, the opera department, and the dance department. It was a huge oh, collaboration. Because wow. yeah. um, when Princeton University does something avant-garde, let me tell you, it's they don't go small. They don't go small. <laughs> so he slips in and it was an, about an hour before their show. And he said, Cheryl, um, the Princeton University production stage manager, a fabulous, talented production stage manager. They're very lucky to have her. Um, had to go home because she was sent to bed rest because she was pregnant with twins. And they had a performance in two, an hour, and they needed someone. And they had to call nobody. The, they had nobody to call the show. So oh, I was man, like, "That poor okay. stage manager is like, I know I'm pregnant, but there's <laughs> Don't a show." Send me home. Right. So I had to go upstairs. Um, I looked over her calling script and looked over the set and. I said to Tim Vassen, who was the director, maybe you should stand next to me in the booth and sort of talk me through it. Like what's actually about going what's coming? Yeah, what's coming up next? And yeah. Tim Vassen, a brilliant Yale School of Drama director, because there's a bit of a Yale mafia over at the Princeton University Lewis Center um, in terms of their faculty. So he was next to me the whole performance. But what I realized was he was telling me when he felt things were happening, there was no anticipation. He was a director. So he wasn't thinking about... In advance oh, to warn yeah. you about anything. <laughs> it wasn't so much warning. It was just about... He didn't realize that a cue might start 20 seconds before it registers. You know, mm. a slow like you. Mm -hmm. So it was it was a very interesting journey, but everything went fine. Um the show went fine, but it was, I think, the first time I ever called a show that I had nothing to do with, I had never seen, I had never heard. Just I call have it. nightmares about that pretty regularly. So, so. Yeah, that, sounds, that sounds hideous to me. It wasn't hideous. It, you know. Yeah, but you don't call shows. <laughs> I don't call shows, but still, I couldn't it's, imagine, like, trying to figure out when curtains flew in and out and when set pieces are supposed to move on and off stage and what prop tracks to the other side without ever seeing the show. Uh-huh. But you have to understand, I was in my home theater. The university uses our 350-seat theater. Um, I just felt if I was confident and commanding, everyone would listen to me. Uh -huh. And nobody got hurt and there was flying scenery <laughs> and there was a flying chandelier and crazy costumes and a bunch of students and but you know it's not brain surgery it doesn't have to be perfect no one died you know so we're, we're making That's art true. it's not brain surgery 
Um, so it was, a, it was a pretty cool happening. And the production stage manager now has two gorgeously fabulous six-year-olds. Um, everyone's healthy and all is well. And she's still heading up the university program over at Princeton. So <laughs> that's wonderful. There you go. That's really cool. I love that story, though I do seriously have nightmares about it where I walk into a space and they're like, you have to call a show in 30 minutes. And I'm like, I don't even know what show you're talking about. <laughs> so but that's wonderful to hear that it can turn out OK and not be my nightmare. <laughs> still going to be your nightmare. I know I'm still going to wake up in a panic about it every time that I have those nightmares. But <laughs> but this does make me feel better. I'll just have to retell my myself this story on a regular basis. Well, thank you so much, Cheryl, for for sharing all of this with us. It's so interesting to, I mean, I love hearing about stage managers anyways, but just to hear about where you got started and, and how life went for you. Mm-hmm. And then we'll bring you on again to talk about McCarter Theater and mentoring and probably after the Dell Hughes Awards, and then you could sleep for a month and then... <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Oh, and I didn't. Yeah, me- and I. Oh, okay. I didn't mention my <laughs> phenomenal husband, who is a civilian. He has nothing to do with theater. Ah, and, both of ours are civilians too. And he has totally enabled me <laughs> to <laughs> do what I do. Uh, my husband Harris Richter actually retired a year ago. His goal was to retire at fifty, but his wife and child got in the way. But he he, re, he retired. He wanted to retire early. He retired last year. Uh, he does not want me retiring. He loves that I go to work. He's like, how much could how much could I donate to McCarter Theater to make you work seven days a week? Um, <laughs> he just keeps bribing them. Like, yeah. aren't you busy on the twenty third? I'm pretty sure you have something going on. <laughs> well, on September twenty third, he's going to be my slave for the day. He's my driver oh, into New York. But, but, um, I, I, you know, I'm very lucky to have found a life partner who has supported my artistic drive and the collaboration. And he's very much a fabric of McCarter theater and he's never resented my schedule or what I do. He often kids himself. He's, he feels he has the benefits of being married and he's like a married bachelor I, so. <laughs> I say that about my husband all the time. <laughs> he could go off and go out with the boys and go yep. to the gym. And yep. now that Jake is 14 going on 15, he is getting very involved in Jake's life and driving him around and all that. So and that is excellent. It's excellent. And I only we only live two minutes, uh, two miles from the theater. So I went from commuting almost two hours each way from the Upper West Side for seven years and then from Milburn, wow. New Jersey for seven years. 14 years I commuted to McCarter Theater and now I live Within two miles minutes. away. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, that's a goal for me, but we'll get there one day. Uh-huh. You'd have to have a steady job to it. I know. Well, you know, she freelanced for years before she got a steady job. I'm still in the I'm in still in the early phases of my career. Mm-hmm. I can get there. Yeah. So I, I guess I freelanced for two years, uh, what I would call freelancing for two years. And then for five years, I had my three islands, mm-hmm. McCarter, 
Spoleto, and New York City Opera. And sometimes I do a little something else uh, for other companies during the, that time. So the first seven years, that was my life. And then from 1995 to today, it's been all McCarter Theater, except for the occasional Spoleto in the summer or Opera Festival of New Jersey or New Jersey mm. Opera I've mm. done in the summer. Or, but or, or. <laughs> <laughs> what? No, Stacey's laughing at, you're like, well, I only did this. Well, except for, and then New Jersey <laughs> Opera Theater and Opera no, New Jersey just, and Spoleto. <laughs> little summer, you know, I usually have. There's I summer gigs have any, when the other one's not going on. Yeah, at McCarter, I usually have between four and six weeks downtime between the end of our season and the start of the next season. Mm-hmm. So now that it's I'm... a perfect opera contract. It's a perfect opera contract. Um, but quite honestly, ever since I had Jake, uh, I've, tried not, I've tried not to work in the summer. Actually, I don't think I've worked in the summer since I've had him, um, unless McCarter really needed me to. Um, cause I just want to spend time with family. Mm-hmm. So I would love to pull back if I could, but, um, I just, I don't work actually. I've never worked a day in my life. You just play. I, I love my job. I'm never going to work. I love what I do. And therefore I've never had to go to work each day. I just, I'm a theater maker and mm-hmm. I love collaborating with great artists Actors, stage managers, apprentice, designers, directors. That's and what I say. You regularly. never have to retire, and everybody's happy. You, your husband. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, yeah. But I've noticed there are some stage managers who, once they're, I've noticed there are some stage managers once their children have gone to college, they have like these whole new careers. Brett Finley is an opera stage manager, and I, I feel like I, Brett Finley. we've never worked together, but we've worked parallel because she was at Spoleto all the years that I was at Spoleto USA. Mm. She would, she, I was doing the theater pieces or the avant-garde pieces, doing the big opera in the Galliard Theater down in Charleston. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Actually, in a week, uh, Brett and I are going to be roommates for seven more weeks because we're we're both doing the show at Philadelphia together. So. <laughs> Uh, one more week and then I get to be roomies with Brett again. So. Oh, I, I feel like her whole, she's had more adventures. Yes, she since, has. Since her daughter has gone off. Mm-hmm. It's like she came out of, I don't know if she ever retired, but she re-sprouted. She keeps talking about <laughs> retiring. And then, you know, she, she said last year, she was like, I threatened to retire. Now I have more contracts than I ever have before. So she just keeps going. Yeah, yeah I thought yeah. she was retiring. What happened to that? Yeah, yeah no, no. I don't think us kind of stage managers, stage managers like Brett just don't retire. She's just going to yeah. keep going until she dies in the going. theater. Uh-huh. <laughs> Probably. Hopefully not tech week. No, hopefully not. But no, she's healthy. She's strong. She just like did this huge hike with Henry. Uh-huh. Across, where was she? Like she was kayaking Vienna and... or something. Yeah. All right. So, um, I hope you'll have me on again and I'm really honored. And yes, absolutely. You, and thank you so much. Really appreciate it. So many more things I'll talk about now. Okay. Thanks so much, Cheryl. I hope to talk to you. Well, I know I'll talk to you soon in our next uh, SMA meeting. Okay, will do. Take care, ladies. (laughs) Thanks.
Congratulations on the success of your podcast. Oh, thank, thank you. you so much. <laughs> Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more, visit our website at twinstalktheater.podbean.com and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can also interact with us on Facebook or Instagram at twinstalktheater. Title music, Dance Macop, is provided by Kevin McLeod of incomtech.com under Creative Commons License 3.0.